Hi there. Thanks for joining our podcast at Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. I'm Pastor Wilson. We're continuing our how to series in James with our new segment, How to Think Differently. It's easy to have our secular culture and media dictate how we think, but God wants us to think differently than our society, even if we end up with the same values or application. 2020 has been a confusing year in so many major aspects of life, but I'm thankful that James was written as wisdom literature and designed to help us think differently. Finally, we have a few links that I'd love for you to check out on the description page. If you want to support our church, there's a PayPal link there, but mostly we'd love to connect with you. So fill out a Google form or join a live watch party when we're premiering our sermon on Facebook, Sundays at 10.30. Lastly, I'm seeing podcast listeners from all over the world, like Canada, Russia, Australia, and Ireland. Send me an email at wilson at renewchurchoc.com, and I'd love to talk with you and hear your story. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, you guys can tuck those thoughts away for a little bit. We'll revisit some of those later. But as you may know, if you've been with us for a little while, we've been studying the book of James. And through the book of James, we've been talking about what it looks like to live differently, or in the last couple of weeks, how to think differently. And James, in his letter, in his book, he's writing to Christians, and he really is challenging Christians saying often through his words, if this is what you believe, if this is what you say you believe, then live like it. Live different. Think different. And I wanted to give a little warning or reminder of James's tone. Um, he, it's very direct, and James does not sugarcoat. He doesn't pull any punches, and today's passage is no different as we study chapter 5. Just to give you a little teaser, the very first few words in the passage that we're going to study is, come now, you rich. So that's basically like me pointing at you and being like, listen up, rich. So we should pray before we jump in. I'm going to pray for us. Um, God, I do pray that, um, that we would hear your voice very clearly. We We need to, we want to hear your voice um, more than mine. And so uh, would you speak to us through James's words this morning? And um, would you give us ears to hear too, that we would hear from you? In Jesus' name, amen. So I told you we're studying um, chapter five and we're gonna do one passage in chapter five, but really it's divided into two sections. We have what I'll call part one and part two. I already gave you a little teaser of part one that starts with, come now, you rich. And the teaser for part two is, be patient, therefore, brothers. And when we get into part two, you'll see he mentions brothers a lot. And whenever brothers is mentioned, you can just think brothers and sisters. He's talking to the family of God. He's talking to Christians. So, We know that because part two is very clear that he's talking to Christians and really the whole letter of James. In the first section, he's addressing them differently. He's addressing the rich 
And really because of the language that we're going to see when we read this passage, we can assume that he's not really talking about rich Christians. He's talking about what we'll, we'll call the wicked rich. So have I prepared you enough? Um, let's jump in. This is James chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Whew, I told you. So as a reminder, this letter, this passage is written to Christians, but this section, this part one, is addressing those that are condemned by their wealth. This is not a portrait of someone who has chosen to follow Jesus. This is a portrait of the ungodly and the corrupt. So we can assume that even though this letter was written to Christians, that these words did reach the ears of these ungodly, of those outside the church. They reached the ears of the wicked rich. And, you know, some commentators even think that um, it was this strong language toward the wealthy that led to James being martyred for his faith. But let's just not let ourselves off the hook here, uh, even though we know his address is for the wicked rich. We're meant to lean in. And we know that through this passage that wealth and riches is actually not the issue, if we read carefully. The issue is not that they have wealth or that people are rich or people are wealthy. The issue is that they've acquired it and they've spent it in ways that don't honor God. So these two questions are the questions we wanna look at. How did they acquire their wealth and how are they spending it? And this is what reveals their, that they are the wicked rich. So one, how did they acquire their wealth? Through unjust and unethical means. It's by cheating others. So we can see that they became wealthy by withholding payment from those that are working for them. And this is significant because, especially in that time when it was expected like, that laborers would see the, receive wages by the end of their workday, withholding pay from a laborer um, could have really um, intense ramifications in their life. It would be fraud at best and murder at worst, leading to hunger, depravity, even the extremes of having to sell family members into slavery just to make it. So we know that they acquired their wealth in an unjust manner. But how are they spending it? We know that there's a lot of good and God-honoring ways that people can use their riches and wealth um, by giving generously, by choosing to bless others. But is that the picture that we see? It's clearly not. James uses the words that they're hoarding, that they're living in selfish indulgence and luxury. So what is this sections say to Christians, his first audience? Well, I think that 
a large part of people, or at least some of the Christians whose ears this message was reaching, identified by, as those that were oppressed by the wicked rich. And so God, through James, to the, those that were being oppressed, he's saying, I see you. I, I see you and I hear your cries. And I see the wicked rich and, and I will judge. I am your God and I can hear your cry. And he's saying, I see the oppressed and I see the, the wicked ways that they are treating you and acquiring their wealth. Um, I see them and it doesn't end well for them. This life is, um, it's killing them from the inside and it leads to death. It's, it's like he's almost saying there's nothing to long for there. There's nothing to envy there. And what else he might be saying to others maybe that weren't being oppressed and what he might be saying to us, to Christians today. You know, James is writing this strong charge against the ungodly rich out there, not so that we would be quick to judge, but that we would use it as an opportunity to self-reflect. I think the question, if we read between the lines here, is are you any different? Do you live any differently? This is clearly the way of the wicked rich that leads to death. Are you living any different? Well, I think that leads us into part two where he's really addressing the Christian specifically. And we know the teaser that I gave us before that part two, he's addressing Christians. It starts with, be patient, therefore, brothers. And uh, we know that if we're a good student of the Bible, whenever we see a therefore, we need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And so we know this passage that we just read that's addressing the wicked rich, that he's saying, look, at, I just painted this picture for you of what living in selfish indulgence and unjust and dishonest gain that it leads to death. Are you living differently? I want you to live differently, and here's how. So we're going to do the second part, and it picks up on verse 7 in chapter 5. It says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's what his response and address is to Christians here. And so we want to talk a little bit about what does the coming of the Lord mean? He says that a couple of different times. Well, we know if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus with your life, that here and now we have received forgiveness, we have received acceptance, access to a relationship with God, that we have been invited to spend eternity in fellowship with God forever after this life. But we also know that this is not just a one-time individual transaction decision, but that Jesus is also promised to come again to renew and restore 
all things. And we think about this internally with ourselves to restore our life and redeem our life. But we look around and we see the earth itself is in decay. And the promise is that Jesus is going to come back and renew all things and redeem all things, creation itself. It's part of how our church got its name. And a great picture of this is in Romans 8, verse 22 and 23. And that reads, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, so we ourselves Christians, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we are groaning. We know, we look around, and this isn't right. All this division, all the things you thought I might have said when I first started talking to you today, all the controversy, we are longing for Jesus to make all things right and good and new. So my earlier question, what are you waiting for? You're actually waiting, you're groaning for the coming of the Lord even if that's not what you recognize it to be right now. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, If I discover within myself a desire which no thing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Are you waiting for something to happen? Are you longing for goodness that you are just not finding here? Are you looking around disappointed? We must conclude that we were made for something more. And if you don't believe this, if you don't believe um, in the coming of the Lord, if you don't believe that there is more than this, um, then the rest of this is not going to make very much sense. You know, part one would actually make more sense. If this is all there is, then it makes perfect sense to just get as much as you can, however you can, and live it up as much as you can, for as long as you can, the end. But James is saying, if you believe this, if you believe in the coming of the Lord, if you believe there is more than this, then live like it by waiting well. And he gives us three specific examples of how to wait well. So we're going to look at those three. And in each of these examples, it gives us the picture of wait like your life depends on it. Be patient for the coming of the Lord, like your life depends on it. And here's the three examples of that. One is the farmer, two, the prophets, and three, Job. So the farmer. It's a picture of a farmer waiting on the rain so that he can enjoy his precious fruit. I have a peach tree on my patio that I occasionally water with a hose and that occasionally bears fruit. But I do not stress when the tree does not bear fruit because that's not how I get my food. I get my food from the store, probably like most of you, and when I think about how my food got there or how my food was grown, I picture um, big fields with fancy irrigation systems and big old tractors, and that is not the picture that James was painting here. His first audience, Jewish Christians, they understood the picture that he was trying to paint. They understood their history. And they knew 
their history of God leading them to their promised land. So, so much of the Old Testament is this promise and God's people being led to their promised land. So what was this good land? Well, this good land that God had for them was different than the neighboring nations and lands around them. The neighboring nations and lands mostly had self-replenishing water sources to provide ease of growing food, but not the good land that God had provided for his people. This good land had no self-replenishing water source, so they were literally dependent on the rain for their food. So God's good place for his people was not a place where they could be self-sufficient on their own. God's good place and good land for his people was a place where they needed to wait on the Lord for the rain like their life depended on it. This is one of the pictures of what James gives us about waiting well. Also the prophets. Prophets were God's spokespeople. Um, they waited to hear from God so that they could share it with God's people. And often, and it was a, it was a time when God's people were, were straying away from um, from what God had called them to do and to be. And so often prophets spoke correction and a call to repentance. So it's not an enviable job. They weren't super popular. They often lived a very lonely life in ridicule. So a prophet was so dependent on God being who he said he was. They were so desperate to hear a word from the Lord to share with people because if if God wasn't who he said he was, what did they have? If their hope wasn't in him, what would they have? And the final example, Job. We learn in the book of Job that um, Job was a righteous man, yet he lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost status. He lost his health. He lost his family. He lost relationships. And if he didn't have God, if he didn't trust that God was going to redeem all things, that God had a purpose for him, what did he have? Job, the prophets, the farmer, all examples of if I don't have God, if I'm, if I'm waiting on God, my, like my life depends on it. So what are you waiting on like your life depends on it? Or another way to ask it is just where is your hope? And one way that helps me think about this is just even think about your last week. What have you been thinking about? What's taking up all your brain space? What have you been stressing and obsessing about? What are you thinking will be the key to all that relief? Or maybe try and fill in this blank. If blank doesn't happen, I will not be okay. What goes there? If blank doesn't happen, I am not going to be okay. Or, or try this one, only if blank happens, am I going to be okay? If Trump wins, if Biden wins, I'm not going to be okay. If one more plan gets delayed or canceled, I'm not going to be okay. If I get sick, if my kids never go to school, I'm not going to be okay. If only, if only I get this job, if only I get this promotion, if only I get this home, if only I had someone... Only when I get married am I going to be okay. If we wait on God's promises, if we wait on the promise that Jesus will come again to renew and restore all things, we will not be disappointed. Anything or anyone else we put in that blank, 
will disappoint us. And you know, Jesus, Jesus holds up under the pressure. He holds up under the weight of us completely depending on him like our life depends on it. So how are we to live out the life of waiting? James um, gives us a couple words um, to challenge us to think about the way that we wait. He says, remain steadfast a couple of times. And he says, do not grumble. It's like he knows that complaining is a natural result of waiting. I am a terrible waiter. I am always in a rush. And good picture of this, if you have seen the movie Zootopia, um, I am Officer Hops, and the rest of the world is Flash the DMV Sloth, and they are about to make me lose my mind. And Jonathan, my husband, is Nick the Sly Fox that's just watching me get tortured for his own entertainment. So I am terrible at waiting. I rush myself, I rush people, I rush kids, I complain. And you know, I bet you're not great at waiting either. Grumbling is easy and it's natural. Remaining steadfast in the wait with the perspective, with the joy, with the hope that we need, well, it's hard. And it's something that we need to fight for. A reminder, a couple of things we don't need to fight for. We don't need to fight for forgiveness. We don't need to fight for our adoption as kids into God's family or acceptance. Those are freely given and never revoked regardless or not if we learn to wait well. But it is worth the fight and worth the hard work to learn to wait well. How do you do it? How do you wait well? How do you fight that good fight? And those are actually things that I want us to share together in our groups later. But a final thought of how we might be able to do this. What if we turned our natural grumbling while we wait? What if we took those complaints and we took, turned our grumbling into groaning? What if instead of feeling guilty about how we're not good at waiting and we complain all the time and I fill in the blanks with the wrong things, what if instead of that kind of condemnation that we give ourselves, what if we daily took our complaints and took our grumblings to God in a Romans 8 groan for redemption? Remember Romans 8 was a passage that said creation itself and we ourselves, we are groaning for Jesus' return. We are groaning for redemption as sons and daughters of God. So what if we daily came to the Lord with our complaints and our grumbling and we turn them to groaning like this, like when, our, when we are sick, when our body is worn down, if we came to God and we said, I am weary, my body wasn't made to last forever. This is actually me groaning for my true home and for a renewed body. This is me groaning for redemption. What if we came to God, I am frustrated by our leaders. I'm angry at injustice. I'm confused by politics. I am groaning, actually, for a renewed city. I am longing for a redeemed nation where the Prince of Peace is my king. That's where my longing is. So what are you waiting for? What is the way that you answered that question? What if you brought it to God daily and said, God, I'm impatient in my wait for whatever it is, but I know that I'm really groaning for you. I'm waiting for you, like my life depends on it. 
And you know, I think, and I wonder, as we give our grumblings and turn them to groanings to God, it's fun to imagine how he might invite you, how he might invite me, or how he might invite Renew Church at large to become instruments of the way he wants to restore and renew the world, and even invite us into his plan and process now, even while we wait. So let's pray. Um, God, we, we want to learn to wait well, and we want to depend on you. We know that we will be disappointed by any other thing that we put our trust and our hope and our dependence in. Um, but Jesus, we know you hold up under the weight. So would you teach us to wait well? Would you help us to see that our complaining and our grumbling is truly just an internal groaning um, to be satisfied and renewed by you? And will you help us see the invitations that maybe you're inviting us into right now to be a part of your renewing and redeeming work in the world? In Jesus' name, amen.